Tommy the Voice by Paul Bassett Davis Technology changes quickly, and it wasn't so long ago that the average person had a phone in their home, but not in their pocket. These days, of course, you jump out of your skin if your landline rings, if you've even got one. No, we're all accustomed to carrying phones around with us now, but the idea that we can use them to get anything we want when we want it is still relatively recent. A ride home in someone's car, for instance, summoned by an app. How long have we been able to do that? Maybe not quite as long as you think. Only a few years ago, the streets of Britain were still riddled with minicab offices, crammed into little cubby holes next to train stations, and dilapidated storefront offices in which protective wire mesh was a big feature. A lot of those places were barely legitimate, and the later at night you found yourself in them, the weirder and dodgier they seemed. It was another time in a different world, and it's where this story begins. Outside, the streets of Clapham were cold, dark and wet, but the minicab office blazed in a fluorescent Saharan noon, battering the retina and throwing every flap of peeling wallpaper into pitiless relief. It was two in the morning, and I'd been at the counter for fifteen minutes, waiting for the car that the controller had promised me in five. I didn't feel like sitting on the bench by the window. Almost all of its cracked red upholstery was occupied by a very drunk kid with bad skin and a funny haircut. He was interfering with a wrapper of fish and chips, occasionally jabbing a crab-like hand into the soggy pouch and raising a clump of food to his mouth. He dropped most of it on the way, and it was a bit like watching one of those cruel amusement arcade games in which a mechanical claw closes on a prize that always slips from its grasp. Behind the sliding glass partition, the controller leaned into her microphone. 7474, come in 74. Speak to me, Derek. A squawk of static-riddled jabber erupted from a tinny loudspeaker. It seemed to satisfy the controller. Lovely, 74. Tell me when you're clear. From somewhere in the back came the percussive burp of an expertly played video game. The controller's telephone rang. She answered it in a tone of courtesy so insincere it amounted to mockery. Hello, car service. Oh, yes, Mr. Draycott, sir, yes. Uh, Drayton, sorry, yes. Are uh, you waiting for your car from Hammersmith? Yes, we're running a few minutes late on that. Oh, that long, is it? Well, well sorry about that, sir. Yeah. All right, there's no need for that attitude, mate. No, because I've just spoken to the driver this minute and he's approaching you now. The problem was he couldn't find you because you're in the crack. The crack between the pages of the A to Z. The controller looked up at me and winked. I don't know why she thought I was on her side rather than the customer's. Maybe she could tell I'd had a couple of drinks, although I was nowhere near as drunk as the kid on the bench. No, not in yours, no, she continued into the phone. We use a special edition in the trade. Uh, he'll be with you in a minute, sir. Yes, that's number three, Archer Road. I got that. Yeah, all right, sorry for the delay, sir. Yes, he's just at the end of your road now. Thank you. The controller replaced the receiver and leaned into her microphone again. All cars, all cars. Anyone Hammersmith area? We've got a screamer in Hammersmith. Anyone Hammersmith? Anyone Hammersmith or Shepherd's Bush? Anyone west of the park? Anyone west London? Anyone London, for fuck's sake? Come on, speak to me, you tossers. There was another burst of noise from the speaker. The controller raised her eyes theatrically and responded. 
Oh, hello, one father. Thought she was dead. Got a job for you. More noise from the speaker. No, forget about your King's Cross regular. I'll give that to the Ayatollah. Uh, get your ass over to, hang on, three Ash, oh no, Asquith, oh, can't read it. Askew Road, Hammersmith? Yeah. How long do you reckon? Five minutes? The crackling reply was almost incomprehensible, except for the words, bleeding nightmare. No problem, the controller said. You'll do it in 15 easy. I'll tell him you're outside, all right. The controller looked up at me thoughtfully, as if trying to place me. Oh, right. You want your car for Kentish Town, don't you? She turned and bellowed over her shoulder. Lenny! Immediately, the video game stopped, and a wiry little balding guy in a tall leather jacket sidled down the narrow passage at the side of the office. All right, pal, he muttered as he passed me. It's the blue Datsun. I got in the front and sat beside him. I wanted to say something about him being there in the back room all the time I was waiting, but I didn't think I could get the right tone. All right, I said finally to fill the silence as he heaved at the wheel to edge from the tight parking space. Oh, it's all right for some, mate, said Lenny, somehow managing to imply I'd offended him. But I'll tell you this, minicab driving is a mugs game, really. Oh, yeah, tell me about it, I said, tuning my accent down so it was a bit closer to his own cockney. Um, I've, I've been in this game myself, actually, years ago. It was true, but I'd only done it for about three months. And although that was plenty of time to experience the more unpleasant aspects of the job, I wasn't exactly Travis Bickle. I didn't know why I was trying to ingratiate myself with Lenny, but I felt embarrassed now, so I kept talking. But you know what, I said, I always reckoned it was the controllers who got the hardest job. He accelerated smoothly through an orange light at Queenstown Road and glanced at me thoughtfully. What do you do now, then? he said. Well, I'd make most of my living as a writer, I said, trying to make it sound like something only just inside the law. Oh, yeah, a writer, he said. Instead of asking me anything else, he chewed his lip, made a controlled skid around the Vauxhall approach and swung out to pass an old black Capri. When the driver, a middle-aged guy with a mullet, realised he was being overtaken, he made a half-hearted attempt to speed up and aggravate us. But he was too late. Then he glanced into his rear-view mirror. Wanker, he murmured affectionately. Then he seemed to come to a decision. You were a driver, yeah? That's right, I said. Uh, yeah, just for a while. It was back. He cut me off. Did you ever hear of Tommy the Voice, then? Well, I don't think so, I said. I was a driver in Bristol, actually. Oh, well, there you go. He made it sound as if I'd admitted to a pitiful deficiency concerning my manhood. As it happens, he continued, Tommy the Voice was the best controller in the business. He was the governor, Tommy was. It's a gift, basically. I mean, you've been a driver. You know what it's like with some of them. Leave you hanging about on the end of your rig, never get you to jobs. But Tommy was magic. Because it does take a certain type. Yeah, it's like a general deploying his troops. You've got to know where all your drivers are, how long before they drop off, how long they're going to take to get to the next job, bearing in mind the traffic, the time of day, the weather conditions, everything. It's like one of those Russian geezers playing chess with 20 different people at the same time. He took an unfamiliar turn after going over Vauxhall Bridge, but seemed confident enough, heading through Pimlico in the right general direction. Now then, he said, Fair play to all those black cab drivers with the knowledge and all that bollocks. I mean, I respect all that. But Tommy knew more about London traffic than any man alive. It's like he could sense things. 
He was like a crafty old spider in the middle of his web, picking up on every little tremble. Yeah, driver calls in, snarl up on the Edgware Road. So Tommy sends the car that's just dropped off in Kilburn down to a job at Euston, going via Regent's Park to Mr Jam, and redirects the one that's approaching Marble Arch from Notting Hill to go and pick up an account job due for half an hour in Battersea. Yeah, forward planning, innit? Strategy, tactics. Ever heard of a bloke called Audie Wingate? Yeah, he was your man in World War Two. If you want creative strategic thinking applied with tactical flair, you study the Burma campaign, mate. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Another thing. Uh, Tommy didn't do no drugs. Not like some of these controllers. Speed freaks, a lot of them. Not that I've got anything against it necessarily. Just that, you know, Tommy didn't need it. I realised where we were when we sailed around Hyde Park Corner and he pointed the nose of the car up Park Lane with the rear end swinging behind us in a lazy pendulum. Why didn't you use Chelsea Bridge? I asked. Roadworks. Anyway, Tommy DeVoice was just one of those people you want to listen to. Like, you know, some people are good with animals. Tommy was good with drivers. And it was all in the voice. Very relaxed, always in control, like an airline pilot when they don't want you to worry. You know what I mean? And all that goes back to this guy, Chuck Yeager, as it happens, that way of talking. Do you know a uh, book called The Right Stuff? Oh, yes, I said, about the astronauts by, by Tom Wolfe. Oh, yeah, that's right. Have you read it? Well, I've seen the film. Oh, well, anyway, uh, Chuck Yeager was uh, was the test pilot for the first American jets. Did they have that bit in the film? Yes, I said. He was he was played by Sam Shepard. Oh, really? Interesting actor. Yeah, playwright and all. Uh, but it was Yeager who started all that casual style, you know, who's done, we have a problem, all of that. Quietly understated, you might call it. And the astronauts, they picked it up from him. And from them, it went to the airline pilots. You know, the way they come over all smooth and soothing on the intercom, like... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a little spot of turbulence up ahead. And what they really mean is they're flying straight into a fucking hurricane and the engines are packed up. I mean, to be honest, there's a bit of showing off going on there, isn't there? I mean, about how cool they can be. Yeah, same with the minicab controllers. But no one could do it like Tommy the Voice. You've got to hand it to him. Is he still working then? I asked. I realised I wasn't following our route anymore. And now, looking out into the night, I couldn't tell where we were. Somewhere up behind Lisson Grove, I thought, although it's not the way I would have gone. Nah, Lenny said. Tommy died years ago. Well, ten, twelve years. Interesting story, as a matter of fact. Turned out he was his own worst enemy, like a lot of them. Who, I said, controllers? No, no, great men. Leaders, that type of person. You know, Achilles heel, feet of clay, you know what I mean? I look at Napoleon. Yeah, all started to go wrong one Saturday afternoon. What, I said. For Napoleon? No, Tommy the Voice, you clown. You see, this particular Saturday, it was Tommy's birthday. Yeah, no one knew exactly how old he was, but someone had found out the date. It was very quiet, summer holidays, and a lot of the regular work was off. A couple of the drivers were watching the racing on the telly in the front office because there was no walking trade to speak of, so Tommy didn't mind. Now, one of the drivers was a bit of a hound for betting on the horses, and he kept on at Tommy to have a flatter. Now, the thing is, only a few of the older drivers knew about it, but Tommy had a serious gambling problem. By this time, he hadn't had a bet for years, but it's like alcohol or drugs, isn't it? You know, you could kick the habit, but you're always going to be an addict. As it happened, this was something I knew about. But I wasn't trying to impress Lenny anymore, and I doubt that my experience would have impressed him anyway. It didn't even impress me anymore. So I just said, very true, and left it at that. Too right, mate. But this particular driver didn't know about Tommy's problem. 
And when he phoned in a bet, he insisted on putting a tenner on for Tommy as a birthday present. So what's the worst thing that could have happened? That was an easy question for me to answer. The horse won, I said. You got it. And that was it. Tommy was well and truly hooked again. He told this driver, a Scottish bloke he was, to put the winnings on the next race. And that was when a man phoned in for a car to take him and his pregnant wife to hospital. She was ten days overdue, so she was booked in to have the baby induced. But for once, Tommy's mind wasn't on the job. The TV in the minicab office was showing the runners for the next race by now, and Tommy and this driver, Angus, I think his name was, they were discussing the nags, checking the form, watching the odds, all the little ritual that addicts wrap around the main event. He shot me a glance. He could tell I knew all about it. Maybe he'd been there himself. People like us send each other some kind of subliminal signal, I think. But I just nodded, and Lenny continued. Well... It was only just before the race was about to start that Tommy remembered this hospital job. So, with his attention on the horses, he simply radioed the driver who was nearest to pick up, who happened to be a new driver in his first week on the job. No experience at all. Tommy sent him to pick up the bloke and his wife in Finsbury Park, and when the driver asked him for the best way to Guy's Hospital, Tommy told him Ivory Corner, down to the Angel, across Old Street, then down over London Bridge, said it was a doddle, left him to it. Now, you might say that nobody could have predicted what happened, but that's the old point. Tommy could have, because normally he thought of everything. But now he was only thinking of one thing, wasn't he? And it was only when the driver called in to say he was stuck in thick traffic that Tommy realised he'd directed the guy down through Islington, which is always packed on a Saturday afternoon. So, with one eye on the race, which had just started, he told the driver to turn off and gave him a parallel route down through the city big mistake. We stopped at a red light, and when I recognised the deserted intersection, I figured out that Lenny was weaving diagonally up through Maida Vale and St John's Wood in a kind of tacking manoeuvre. He drummed his fingers on the wheel as we waited. Well, of course, he said, an experienced driver might have been able to take up the slack when it all started to unravel, and maybe if Tommy had won again on that second race, he'd have left it at that and got back on the ball. But probably not. I mean, if a gambler does well, he keeps betting because he's on a winning streak. And if he loses, he keeps betting because it stands to reason that his luck's about to change. But either way, he accelerated away a nanosecond before the lights changed and left a pause for me to complete the sentence for him. He always keeps betting, I said. Lenny nodded gravely. Next thing, he continued, the driver calls in to say he's stuck in a jam on Canterbury Road. Now, Tommy remembers there's roadworks on a new one-way system all the way down to Shoreditch. Been there for weeks. Should have remembered before. Then the driver says the woman in the back has started bleeding. She's in pain. He thinks she's going to need a doctor. Tommy tells him not to panic and he'll work something out. But even then, it didn't really get his attention. The last race was about to start and he still hadn't picked a horse. Now, once he'd done that, he gave the driver instructions to get him out of trouble. Or so he thought but he wasn't thinking straight. So he didn't realise that what he'd done by now, in effect, was to direct the driver around three sides of a square, so that now the car was trying to cross the same traffic jam it had been stuck in to begin with. Then things got really bad. Lenny paused for a moment. I had a strange urge to take over the story myself and 
steer it towards a happier outcome than the one I could see unfolding inside it like a malignant growth. Then he took a deep breath and continued. Well, the young driver says he's completely gridlocked now. He can't turn, he can't move, he can't do anything. And then he starts yelling down a rig, going spare. Says there's blood everywhere. He thinks she's having the baby. Tommy tries to think. He's back on the case now, but it's too late. What can he do? Call an ambulance? No, it wouldn't get through. He thinks some more. Reckons the only thing is to locate a medic somehow and get him on a courier service motorbike. So he gets the drivers in the office to work on that. And meanwhile, he puts out a call to all his drivers on the road and other firms as well, anyone he can raise, and asks if someone can patch straight through to the gridlock car with some emergency medical advice. But by now, the woman's gone into labour and she's hemorrhaging badly. We reached the big intersection at Swiss Cottage. I thought it would be obvious which way to go now, but Lenny turned left off Adelaide Road and began driving through dark, leafy streets of big, expensive houses, and I was lost again. When he spoke again, his voice had perked up, and I thought maybe the story wasn't going to end so badly after all. Well, then a doctor did get to the car, a passing pedestrian, as it happens. He went to work like a demon to try and deliver the baby, and all the time the radio channels open, and the young driver's giving Tommy a running commentary, and Tommy can hear everything that's going on in the background, the woman screaming, and the husband freaking out, and he can't do a thing. He just has to sit there in the office and listen. Finally, Tommy hears the cry of a newborn baby. The driver breaks down in tears and you can hear a bit of cheering in the background. But then it all goes quiet. Tommy keeps asking, what's happening? What's happening? The driver won't tell him, can't bring himself to. Eventually, he gets it out of him. The baby's still all right, but a mother has died. We crossed Haverstock Hill just above Chalk Farm, and I knew where we were again now. It was the home stretch. Lenny continued. That was the beginning of the end for Tommy the Voice. Once it had sunk in, he blamed himself for everything, of course. He carried on working, but people said he lost his touch. He started working shorter hours, and then he did day shifts, and his voice changed. It didn't have the same ring to it. It was... It was thinner, a bit hesitant, you know, the, the confidence was gone, I suppose. And then, exactly a year later, Tommy was working a Saturday afternoon. He was very busy, with a couple of big football games on, and part of the northern line was shut down as well. But Tommy wasn't really on top of it. Then he starts to get a bit distant, almost a bit dreamy. Starts asking, who's heading west? Is anyone on the west way? Anyone leaving town, driving into the setting sun? He gets slower and slower, and all over London, all his cars were slowing down, because the controller keeps the whole network moving, keeps it alive. But what was happening was that Tommy's heart was giving out. I mean, they talk about arterial roadways, don't they? And all his cars out there, they were like little corpuscles, getting more and more sluggish, just like the blood that Tommy's heart was desperately trying to pump through his veins. And he put up a terrific fight, but it couldn't last. Finally, the whole network of cars flowing through the city ground to a halt. His last message was, all cars stay in position. And that was the end of Tommy the Voice. We sat in silence for a while, Kentish Town Road, nearly there. What happened to the driver? I asked. What do you mean? The young driver. Did he give up the job? 
There was a pause. Well, then he stared straight ahead without replying. Finally, he shook his head. Nah, he said. He kept at it. He's still driving. There was another long pause. Then he cleared his throat, and when he spoke again, he sounded glad to move on. Not quite the end of the story, as it happens. One week later, Saturday afternoon, you'd have had a hard time getting a minicab in West London. And even if you'd found one, you might have got stuck in very slow traffic. There was a cortege of minicabs over a mile long for Tommy's funeral. It was wonderful, magic. And the vicar had been a driver himself at one time, and he devised a special prayer made up of minicab patter. It was something like, uh, We beseech you, the controller of all things, to send your top driver, the Lord, to pick up a very special fare on account. And when you P.O.B., take our friend and brother, Tommy the Voice, to his well-earned bonus, dropping off at thy base in heaven. Everyone loved it. Then he swung across the main road to make the turn to my address. But the funny thing was, he continued as he glanced at the house numbers, that his wife turned up. None of us even knew he was married. And you know what she told us? Tommy had never driven a car in his life. Never even took his test. In fact, he fucking hated cars. He pulled up neatly right outside my house. We sat in silence for a moment. Then I roused myself. Uh, what's the damage? I asked, fishing out my wallet. Lenny frowned at the steering wheel, as if perplexed by some novelty in the concept of payment for the ride. He pursed his lips, and finally he said quietly, That will be £28.50. Christ, I muttered. That's a bit over the odds, isn't it? Well, he said, I'm charging you a bit extra for the story, because you'll probably use it. What story, I said. By this time I was out of the car, handing three tens through his open window and making it clear with a gesture that I didn't want change. That story, then he said, about Tommy the Voice that I'd just made up. You didn't believe all that old bollocks, did you? I just stood there with my mouth open for a moment. Then I shook my head, expelling a snort of what would have been laughter if it hadn't been mixed with more than a touch of bitterness. As a matter of fact, I said, I did, yes. Good, then he said. And just remember, you're not the only writer who's worked as a minicab driver. Good night, mate. His electric windows sliced up and he spun the wheel, raising one hand from it to wave briefly without looking back at me, as he executed a smooth U-turn, clearing the cars parked on the other side of the road with a millimetre to spare, and surged away back towards the lights of Kentish Town Road. I searched in my pocket for my keys. I wondered why I was suddenly feeling lonely. The end.